some days are so hellish and I think, you know what, I don't really give a crap. I'm going to do it my way. And I feel that the vo the voice should be heard in court to start the healing and for the community to know and for the defendant to hear how they hurt this person and for the person to say, you hurt me. So I have done this. I've been a judge for 17 years. I've done it from the day I took the bench because when I was a lawyer and it didn't happen for my clients, I thought, damn it. I'm going to do this and I've done it. And when they tell me I can't do it, I'll get off the bench and lobby for it. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of What Makes You Think, the show that flips the traditional interview format, showing you a unique and often funny side to some of your favorite figures in sports and entertainment. But don't worry, we get to some real stuff too. I'm your host, Nicole Langevin. And today, today guys, Today, I sat down with a woman who has impacted our sport and our generation by allowing almost 200 survivors to speak at one of the most high profile and despicable court cases. She gave a voice to those who thought they couldn't have one. She opened the door for healing to begin. She showed an entire generation that you can speak up. Ladies and gentlemen, Judge Rosemarie Aquilina. All right. Well, welcome, Judge Ac Major Rosemarie Aquilina Esquire, Chef. Uh, what, what exactly, how exactly am I supposed to address you? Well, you certainly can call me Judge. Uh, a lot of times when people don't call me Judge, I get these emails saying, well, that was so disrespectful. They didn't call you Judge. And I say, you know what? People know me in different contexts. So if you want to call me Rose, that's okay. Because this is a friendly dialogue and you're not appearing in front of me. I never mind that. And you can tell people who grew up with me, call me Rosie. And other people just love Rosemary, my full first name. And so they call me that. So I've never minded what anybody calls me. And even if somebody calls me, you know, the B word, I just say, great. I'm known as Barracuda. That's what I am. <laughs> and so you can call me whatever you want. I'm going to turn it around in my head to be a positive. And so if you're comfortable, judge, that's fine. If you want to call me Rose or Rosemary or Rosie, I'm good with that too. How's that? That's a, that's a great answer that doesn't give me an exact direction. So I'm going to hope whatever comes out of my mouth is good. <laughs> it's all good. Promise. <laughs> now, my, my daughter's name is Rosanna. And so I've, I've got a Rosie in the house. And I've always had a soft spot for any Rose variation. My mom called me Rose from the time I was, I can remember. She still does. She can't explain why. It's just one of those things that stuck. My dad called me Poops, but my mom <laughs> called me Rose. So we'll go with that one. Yeah, yeah. But that's always been a name that's been near and dear to my heart. And when I had my daughter, I knew I needed to use Rose in there. My husband wasn't a fan of just Rose. So I went through every, and it was Rosalie and Rosemary and Rosemary and Rosalita. I mean, everything I could think of. And then I was driving in the car one day and Toto came on and I went, that's the one. And it yeah. worked. He's a musician. You know when it fits. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, I've always loved my name because it's my grandmother's name. And nice. I've named, I have three daughters and two sons. And my daughters all have the middle name Rose because mm -hmm. I think it's in honor of my grandmother. And when you have really good people in your life, it's the best way to honor them is to use that name. And for you, mm -hmm. honoring your child by what your mother called you is, it's so significant. Yeah. Well, guess what her middle name and my middle name and my mom's middle name and my grandmother's middle name is Marie. Ah. So look at that. Yes. We're already connected. We haven't even started. Yes. <laughs> All right. So I know you've done a, a little bit of research because you are in the utmost professional. So I know you've done a little research on the show. Just want to make sure you're aware this is a singing show, correct? <laughs> the one thing I will not do in life is sing publicly. So you can try, but <laughs> let's just say that your viewers will be suing you for ear damage. See, I do my research too. <laughs> All right. But what you do know is that I, I like to warm up my guests in a different kind of way. So what I would like to play with you is a few rounds of, I guess it's kind of like the final round of a $100,000 pyramid where okay. I'm going to list I'm going to say some things, some names, phrases, things like that. And I want you to try to figure out what this category is. So, oh, for example, if I said headphones, 
muffs, you might say, things that go on your ears. Okay. Good example. Okay. All right. Here we go. First one. Franklin, Charles, Tops. Names of presidents, names of dollar money, and names of singers. Jackson 5. Yeah, um, you be more specific. I'm going to go from the top again now that you're in the yes. music realm. Motown. How about Motown? There it is. Yes, I, I, it I is. have all of those on my phone and listen to them. So, yeah. So you can't get Motown better than Motown. So that's your thing. So, you know, people have athletes have, you know, their hype music that they listen to before they get out on the, out on the floor and compete. Do you listen to Motown before you step into the courtroom? Does it get you I in listen, the zone? Yeah, well, I listen to a lot. It depends on the kind of mood I'm in. I listen to um, things like Nancy Sinatra, These Boots Are Made for Walking. I listen to I Did It My Way because some days are so hellish and I think, you know what, I don't really give a crap. I'm going to do it my way. And I also love uh, The Impossible Dream, an old song. I think I was nine years old when I first heard it by Glenn Campbell and a whole bunch of other women, uh, women and men have sung it. And they all do, do a beautiful job, but those songs inspire me, but also share Barbara Streisand. Um, it just depends on what kind of mood I'm in and, and what's happening. Sometimes on Monday, I play Manic Monday and I sing it at the top of my lungs on the way to work because I know it's going to be Manic Monday. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think we all know what that's like. Yes, we do. All right. Going into the next category. Are you ready? Okay. Not cooking ever again, singing on live television, singing in front of a crowd, singing right now. Uh, people with bad voices, people with fear, anxiety, <laughs> uh, things, things that make me fearful. Yeah. Very good. There we go. Things that cause anxiety, things that will never happen. <laughs> yeah. The impossible. Not. The impossible. <laughs> things that are impossible or right. not probable. Yeah. <laughs> Next one, <laughs> Verner's, Kogel Vienna's. Products made in Michigan, things I eat every summer. Saints Peter and Paul All Area High School. Things made in Saginaw. Yep, <laughs> I'm pointing to the part of my hand. Yeah, Things so, from Saginaw. So my husband is from Saginaw specifically. Oh, I'm seriously, what high school did he go to? He went to the one that has a really good marching band. Um, Douglas MacArthur? Eisenhower? Uh, um, if you said it, I would know it. That's quite all right. Yeah, you should know your husband's high school. I should. I should. I should. <laughs> yeah. All right, we're going to shift gears a little bit. And I want to ask you kind of about the, the judge before the judge. And... You know, the the world is pretty informed on the big things that you've done in the, in your years of practice, and we'll touch upon that a little bit. But I'm really curious about who you were before Judge Aquilina. And one of the questions I want to know, and I, I always think this is very curious: Do you consider yourself and and looking back before you uh, reach this point in your career, somebody who walks the walk and then talks the talk? Or talks the talk and then walks the walk so for example i i'm personally i talk the talk and then i figure out how to walk i've done that since i can remember how have mm. you been throughout your career with that i think i've done the walk and then done the talk following that thinking what the heck have i done and what just impromptu promoted me to say this advocate for somebody who didn't have one or to speak out and say, hell no, and that's not happening today. That's not happening to me, or I want to be heard or someone else needs to be heard. And I've done that since I was a small child. And it's taken me years and years to figure out what place did that come from? And how have I been led down this path? So I've always walked it without realizing what I was doing and then had to talk about it. And talking really helps. And it helps you figure out who you are, where you're going, why you've done something, what has happened to you. And, and that's really what I've done is I've analyzed, you know, what is it down this path that is for me because I keep traveling down the same one. And is that path being in that advocate type role? 
Yes. It's not just, you know, the advocacy, I think, comes secondary to me finding my voice as a young child. Um, there's so many times I just uh, put out a book called Just Watch Me through Audible and in partnership with Hello Sunshine and Reese Witherspoon. And she had the same questions to ask me and said, what, how did you figure this out? And so we, I've, it's in my memoir. And so I don't want to rehash that. If somebody's listened to it, I'll be boring them. But essentially, since I was a small child, I was told you can't do this. Or my brother was given all these fun toys and I was given a doll. And I'm like, wait, I don't want this doll. I want what he has. And then questioning well, why am I asking? Why do I have to ask for this? Why aren't I just given these things? Mm -hmm. And then it leads me through my whole life of being this troublemaking child, because I was always saying, wait, what about me? And I don't want that. I want this and no one listening to me and having to really stand in the corner for a couple of hours where you know, I didn't want to eat my dinner. So I would stand there. And if I had to stand there all night, I was going to stand there all night. Um, my father saying, well, you'll say you're sorry to your mother. And I thought, well, I'm not going to say I'm sorry for what I don't feel like I'm sorry. So I'm just going to stand in the corner. Um, there's so many instances in my life where someone wanted me to do something and I said no, or wanted me to do something else that I didn't want to do. My father wanted me to be a doctor and there's no one in the whole world who wants me to be a doctor. Believe me, it's, I don't have math and science. It's the last thing on my list right down there was singing. And, um, Finally, I was an English major. And when I said, I want to be a writer, he said, uh, how are you going to support yourself? You need to go to medical school. And I said, well, I'm going to be a lawyer. And I did that because doctors hate lawyers. And it's been a great career for me. And it's given me a, a much more depth in my ability to write and think and process and help right. people, which has been this path. But, you know, for my whole life, you know, I jumped in and said, yeah, I'm going to be a lawyer. And I did that. I did that walk. And then I thought, what have I done? And then I thought, well, if I'm going to go down this path, I want to be a judge. I want to be at the top of my field. I'm going to help people. I'm going to help people who've had to, the battles that I've had. Mm -hmm. And so it's been a, I think a God-given uh, statement because I hadn't ever thought about being a lawyer until I was that mad at my father for not letting me choose, for not giving me a choice and a voice. And so I finally said, this is what I'm doing. And it fit and it stuck. And so it's been an interesting journey for me since then, because I did discover that one of the biggest joys in my life is helping people and helping people find their voice and their path. So something that started out a little bit of a take that dad yeah. turned out to be the best, one of the best decisions you've ever made. Is that accurate? Right. Yeah. I, I would say so. Yes. Yeah. And so now instead of saying you made me do this, I say, thank you. And, <laughs> you know, for every man who's ever said, um, you talk like a lawyer. I say, thank you. Um, because it's not a bad thing, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, but it's seen as a bad thing. It's not. Right. And so you, you kind of are, are being that person that you wish was there for you all of those years, that advocate that said, Hey, she shouldn't apologize for something she's not sorry for, or she doesn't have to play with the doll if she doesn't want to. So you're becoming, or you have become that person that you wish was there all those years. Absolutely. And I think there is an interesting outcome of that, that no one's ever really asked me about that I've not talked about, but I've recently thought a lot about with, I have five children and with those children, I have given them, I think sometimes too many choices because I was not given choice. And I think sometimes when you have, when you're a young child and you have too many choices, and then you make a choice and the adult says, and you have to stick with that choice because that's something that I think we all have to do. You make a choice, you have to live with it. Right. And I've tried to teach my children that. I still don't think that I know the right way to do that because sometimes when you give people too broad of a choice, I think that can also lead to not finding the right path as well because okay. maybe you don't have that kind of information at the time. So I think what I've learned as I've gotten older is that you do need to have a voice and choice, but you also need to have someone throughout your life to be a mentor, to guide people, to really talk it out, to make sure that path does really fit and is not that reaction of, okay, you don't like this, so I'm going to be a lawyer. Um, so I've also tried to mentor as many people as I can, because I think we all need someone to be a mentor to be a, a someone that when we're uncertain, we can really talk it out. Someone in a safe place who honestly 
cares about us and listens to us and works it out. And sometimes that's multiple people. You know, I, I have a four and a six year old and dealing even now, you know, dealing with that exact thing where you they they have no control in their little lives at all. And so right. they and they they strive for that, they crave that. But also if they had full control, that would be a very scary place for them too. So presenting them with options that you know are are all safe and all suitable, but then giving them that thing that they crave so much having control. And I think as a parent, you know, you said you you felt like you gave them too many choices. Unfortunately, you know, we don't we don't have the book yet that tells us exactly yeah. what to do. And every parent is imperfect. It doesn't matter. We're just doing the best we can. But I think one of the best things that we can realize as parents, and I realized this as a coach before I became a parent, is that it's okay if it doesn't always come from me. As long right. as there is another person who is out for their best interest and is outside of my own head and my own perspective that they can trust, if you can get them to not touch the hot stove, it doesn't have to, that message doesn't have to come from me. I actually, I, I applaud that because one of the things I talk about uh, in my motivational speaking is that your children should always be given a safe person to talk to because there's a hundred percent of the people and I've talked to thousands and thousands of people I know in my own life, I bet this is true in your life, is that none of us told our parents a hundred percent of what was going on with us. So every child needs to learn that there are other people Yep. that will give them good advice and that are safe for them. Not everyone is safe, right. but they need to be able to recognize a safe person and those who are not safe, but to have that safe person where if they're not going to tell me something, they're going to tell it to that safe person. In my case, I taught my children, it was my siblings. And yep. I said, they will never break your trust. I'm not going to ask them. They're not going to tell me, but they will always be there to help you and to talk it out with you if you can't come to me. And I think that's really a... Um, a very important message in life, because if I can't go to my parents or my husband or uh, whoever it is in my life, then I need to have somebody, even if it's a therapist, yep. to ask, you know, what's going on? Can you, can you help me? And there is a sign of strength in that, which I've also taught my children that when you ask for help, when you reach out to someone, um, that's a sign of strength. Yeah, it's hard to do. It's hard to do. Yep, definitely. So uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna go into this your role as a judge. And I, you know, I think that's probably where most people hear your name and they they think of you as a judge. And I want to share something with you. I'm a judge also, but in a very different way. <laughs> I judge gymnastics. And there I'm gonna see if you see the parallel here, but there's a one of one of my three businesses that I own is a service where we we break the wall between competitor and judge so outside of the competition arena we actually are able to converse with the athletes and their parents and help them understand why they got the scores that they got how they can improve because in the competitive arena we're not allowed to do that yes. and one of the questions i get a lot is what type when we're talking about floor what types of routines do judges like and i say it doesn't matter and I, I give them this analogy. I say, being, being a judge for gymnastics or anything, I think, it's very similar to being a food critic. If you're a food critic, your job is to check everything out and then make a judgment and share that with the world. Now, you could be a food critic who's not really a seafood fan, but you still better be able to recognize a good salmon dish. And you also better be able to give it the credit that it deserves outside of your own personal opinion. In gymnastics, I'm like, I'm not telling you what style of choreography I like because it doesn't matter. And furthermore, some of the routines that I have given the best scores to are actually a style that I'm not very fond of, but it was done so well that it's not my place to impart my opinion. Totally so, agree. <laughs> totally agree. So is that something that you think people can learn or is that something, because clearly you have opinions, but when you step into that courtroom, your opinion doesn't matter in terms of when you're, when you're weighing the evidence, right? You just have to, right. you, you apply the rules, just like we apply the code of points to the gymnastics, you apply the law to what you're seeing. Is it easy to shut that off? Is that something that's learned? Or do you think that's just some people can do that and some people can't? I think there's different pieces. So in the legal profession, especially if you get into a jury trial or bench trial, there are elements 
to every crime and they have to be proven or disproven. And of course, as the judge, I'm the gatekeeper of the law. I have to make rulings on does this come in or does it not? And of course, the jury decides then on the case. Uh, and sometimes I wear both hats. But um, the idea would be that once we get to, we have to have that presumption of innocence. So like you say, it doesn't matter the floor routine. We have this presumption of innocence. And then we have the evidence that comes in. And then if there's a decision of not guilty, okay, that case goes away. But if there's a guilty, then we have to look at certain criteria. So there's things that and people don't really understand. They just say, well, you're going to throw the book at them. Well, no, we have to look at each individual person as an individual, like you're looking at each individual gymnast. And I'm looking at rehabilitation of defendant, protection of society, punishment of defendant, deterrence of others. And then is the sentence proportional? And of course, we look at guidelines and other things, but I hear the victims, I hear the defendant, I hear the lawyers on both sides, I will hear family members of the defendant um, and the victim, whoever's involved in the case, because crime has a rippling effect. And then based on that, I make a decision about sentencing. Now, if they go on probation, what I'm looking for, it doesn't matter what the crime is, what have they learned? What can I help them do better? Uh, what's their backstory? Because the backstory tells so much. Sometimes it's that their grandmother died suddenly and they were very close to them and, and they really are so angry about it. They're lashing out or their father left them when they were five and they've never seen him again. So they've always been so hurt and this hurt has built up and they've tried to shove it down with drugs or alcohol. So sometimes I have to order grief counseling or, you know, individual and group therapy. I have to order drug and alcohol rehabilitation counseling therapy in all sorts of directions. And what I try to do in individual sentencing is to see where are those errors that they've made? What has caused them? What's the underlying issue? And then have them address that in probation. And they're either going to do very well and get off probation even early, Mm -hmm. or they're going to do so poorly, I send them to jail or prison. So they like what you're scoring. They do get points for certain behaviors and how well they do. Now, what's interesting about what I do, which is different than yours, is that probation often comes to me and says, this person should be off. They need to go to prison or jail as the case may be because they've only, they've only done this much and they're not doing well with the other parts or they refuse to do it. I look at people as human beings. Sometimes someone's 75% is your 100%. So sometimes I just say, you know what? This person's going to get off probation successfully because I'm astonished they even did 75%. And to me, that speaks so well. So it's really case by case. So as much as we are similar, I get to do a little bit more um, jostling with right how I put the points in and where I score them. Does that make right. sense? Yeah. And that's, that's after that, that is after the verdict is in after the then verdict. that comes into play. Or the so plea, now, yes. Okay. So can I ask you something then after, yes. after all that you have seen, do you, do you believe that most people are good? Yes. I think that even bad people are good. I think they somewhere took a wrong turn or had some trauma or something happened to them. There's always a backstory and they couldn't recover from that. I do not believe that there's any human being that's born to be evil. I think we're all born to want good things in life and education, food, shelter, love, and then I think we get out into the world and the world sadly changes us for whatever reason. Not everybody has a mommy and daddy like you and me. Some right. people have mommies and daddies who aren't there, who beat them, who rape them, who sell them, uh, who drug them. And so these happy, healthy babies who started out uh, become those people that end up in front of judges. And some of them, most of them, happily, we can rehabilitate. Some of them we cannot. And sadly, then we have to put them in various institutions. Sometimes it's uh, prison and sometimes it is a mental health facility um, because they they can't live with the rest of people. Um, and mm -hmm. hopefully they can eventually. But um, I, I think everybody in life starts out equal. Mm -hmm. 
And how how hard is it then? Because I'm listening to what you're saying and I'm I'm reading your facial expressions as you're saying it. You you clearly care. You want what's best for people. And that's what a great person to be in the line of work that you're in. But how hard is it to not take that home with you every day? Do you are you able to leave your work at the door? Yes. And the reason is, first of all, I have years and years of experience. But second, I want you to think about, and I'm asked this question all the time, especially by law students, um, go to the emergency room with an emergency. Maybe you were out doing yard work and you have a very bad gash on your leg. If you go in and the doctor starts crying over your leg, you tell that doctor to leave the room. You want a different doctor. Right. So it's not that I have a stomach for it and I accept it all, but I really try to do the best job I can do on that particular day, get as much information as I can, talk to people, figure out the backstory on both sides, the victim, the defendant, the families, figure it out. And then I make a decision and I live with that decision. Do I get it right? A hundred percent of the time, not one judge does. We're all humans, but I try. And so I sleep at night and I try And people will say, well, no, you don't, but come watch me every day. I can give you my Zoom number. Now it's easy to watch my courtroom. A lot of people do Zoom in. I do try to treat those people in front of me like they're my family, because I do also believe that we're all connected. And that's one of the reasons I'm out there speaking with people, trying to change the legal world so that it is uh, better uh, answering people's questions. People feel better about coming in front of the court. And I think we have the responsibility to make our justice system better so that it doesn't appear to be an injustice system. So I listen to everyone as if they're my family and say, okay, if that were my kid in front of me or my uncle or my neighbor, or, you know, someone I really, really know and care about, what would I want someone to do for them or with them? Right. So when you have a a high profile case, is that an opportunity for you to impact the, the greater good, the larger whole, not just that particular case when it when things get a lot of media attention? Um, does that become then something where you just said you, you want to help the justice system get better and better? I have never, I've had many high profile cases literally since I took the bench. I was a district judge for four years and had two of the longest preliminary exams we've ever had in our county, possibly our state. And then of course, I've had a number of high profile cases on the circuit bench. And my prior history, I worked for a legislator, State Senator John Kelly for 10 years. And on the Senate floor, there's cameras every single day. So I learned to live with those cameras. And he required that I sit with them on the Senate floor. We were on there three days a week, sometimes more. And you learn to ignore the press. You just do your job. They were just wallpaper to me. And that's really how I feel about them in my courtroom. I think I'm honored that they are in the courtroom actually, because I think the people have a right to know what we do. We're a branch of government. And so I don't do anything different in front of the cameras that I would do if they weren't there. It's one case at a time, listening, learning, and figuring out what's the best. I do think, however, that when a judge imposes sentence or any decision, It does affect others in the community. It can affect other judgments of other judges. Um, And I hope that I'm making the right decisions to have good rippling effects for healing in our community and in our world. So I don't think about, well, this is going to have a national impact because I never, I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know that it does. And I have had some tremendously important cases that never had a uh, word in the newspaper or just had a little paragraph in the newspaper. And I thought they were so important. Wow. So what would be a reason then to close the courtroom to, to media? The only reason, the only times I close the courtroom to media is when I close it to the public. And that would be when there's a non-public record, there's the Holmes Youthful Training Act. Uh, when you are 17 and and under 21, you can earn a non-public record. So immediately I close the courtroom so that it remains non-public. There's what we call 7694A for domestic violence, 7411 for uh, drugs. So for those kinds of things, I um, close the courtroom because we must to keep the non-public record. I think some judges, maybe where there are 
child cases, things like that, um, where we don't want those names out there in the media. But that's just not my experience. I don't close those kinds of cases because uh, the media that I've dealt with are very, very responsible. And if I'm ever worried about it, I will say, you know, you can't shoot the jury. You know, you can't shoot this minor, you know, and they all come back and say, we have ethics too. We know, we know. And they also know in my courtroom that if they violate the rules, they will never enter the courtroom again. So I think it's the public's right to know. And honestly, as a parent, I want to know if there's a pedophile out there, I want to know. And I want to know what went wrong, what went right. How can I protect my children? So I look right. at this information as good information and the job of the media to be there. And they're not there more often than not. You know, the, I wish they were there daily. Really? I think they ought to be in every courtroom. Wow. Yeah. Well, think about your newspaper. How, how thin is it? It's thinner and thinner and thinner, right? right? So how much news are you really getting? I promise you, if you watch my courtroom for one day, you will know more about what's going on in our community than any day you pick up the newspaper. And that's the way it should be. People should be able to tune into judges and say what's going on in my neighborhood. Yeah. And we, we only know what's seen. So, so to me, an outsider, if I see five big cases in the news this year, then I think that there were five big cases this year because that's right. all we were shown. Yeah, that's a that's a good perspective change. So I'm going to do a quick, uh, I actually am not going to do video. I just have a photo that I'm okay. going to pull up and screen share with you. And it, it basically speaks for itself. But I'm I'm very curious. I know how I felt when I saw this, but I'm I'm really curious to hear your reaction. Got a little contest for you guys. I am giving away two free coaches consultations. These are going to be over Zoom unless you live in Connecticut. The way you can participate is by going on Twitter and letting me know who is your favorite guest so far on this show. When you do so, please make sure to tag at YouThinkPod and use the hashtag YouThinkPodContest. Two winners will be randomly selected on September 1st and will receive a free coaches clinic on one of the many topics that I offer from technical to philosophical to artistic to management to anything gymnastics. Let's leave it at that. All right. I can't wait to see your responses, guys. I also want to remind everyone that over Labor Day weekend, I will be at the Gymnastics Association of Texas Convention, affectionately known as GET. And I will be doing multiple presentations as well as having a booth in the exhibit hall. At my booth, you will find my dear friend, Wendy Bruce, Olympic bronze medalist, and also the owner of Get Psyched, which is mental toughness training for athletes. And also with me is another dear friend of mine and director of choreography for Precision Choreography, Shira Lewis. She's also a doctor of physical therapy, guys, specializing in gymnastics. And if you can come by on Saturday to our booth, Shira is going to be offering free, yes, free movement screenings. Now coaches, we know athletes aren't the only ones with aches and pains. So come by the booth and see how Shira can shed some light on how you can make small adjustments to make your day-to-day -day life a lot more comfortable. This episode is brought to you by Creatively Disruptive, the marketing team behind your team. They can help you strategize and execute marketing campaigns to help your business thrive. Check them out at creativelydisruptive.com. You can also join the Gymnastics Marketing Facebook group. It's an absolutely free resource. And when I say resource, that is an understatement. There are countless resources within the group of helping business owners to support what they're doing, support what they've gone through and help them improve. So check out that Facebook group. This episode is also brought to you by Cornerstone Traveling Conventions. Bring the coach's education to you. Gym owners, you're going to love this. You can erase the costs of all travel expenses that you would normally incur sending your coaches to coaches education events. Instead, the convention comes to you and your coaches will be educated on everything from preschool to team and everything in between, as well as business tracks. If you're interested in bringing a Cornerstone convention to you, you can send an email to Cornerstone Conventions Gym, G-Y-M, at gmail again that's cornerstone conventions gym at gmail.com let them know you're interested and get your staff moving towards motivation and education 
I just have a photo that I'm okay. going to pull up and screen share with you. And it, it basically speaks for itself. But I'm, I'm very curious. I know how I felt when I saw this, but I'm, I'm really curious to hear your reaction. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> so just for people that are listening, I have a screenshot from the Saturday Night Live episode where Natalie Portman was on as the host and she's introducing, I think it was Dua Lipa for yeah. the musical act. And she is wearing a very simple white shirt with the black letter saying Judge Aquilina. Um, so that happened on a Saturday night. Mm -hmm. And Sunday morning, very early in the morning, my phone started ringing. And I thought, what is going on? I hadn't seen it. And then everyone was sending me the video and saying, look at this. And I was literally shocked. No idea. And um, I met Natalie Portman a few months after that. And I asked her, I said, did you plan this? And she said, well, I said, and I asked, did you get permission? What was going on there? Because I was, you know, I'm honored. Um, I was awestruck and flabbergasted. I, I didn't, I, I just thought, wow, what, what, why is this so important? And then she said, look, I didn't ask for permission. I put it on and um, I wanted to make a statement, you know, the Me Too movement and letting people have voice in safe places is important. And I didn't set out to do all that. So, I, and I talked to her about that and she said, well, but you did it. You moved us faster and farther than we ever thought. And um I just said, look, I'm just so honored that you that you did that. And in those couple of seconds, my name went around the world, I don't know how many times. And overnight, my name was on, um, geez, baby bottles and T-shirts and sweatshirts and yeah, computer covers. And I actually had to trademark my name to get those off because as a judge, I don't know that I should be peddling toothpaste, you know? Um, <laughs> So I've, I actually spend money every year now to, to get those things down. And at some wow. point I will do a nonprofit, which I hope to work on some more to have any of those funds go somewhere where I think it needs to be. But, um, you know, that really just caught my breath. I just, when I saw that, I, I'm very, as you can tell, I always have something to say. And I looked at that and I, there were no, no words. It was just uh, shock. Um, but I, I, such an, such an honor. And she's such a great human. She believes in so many of the same causes that I do that when I also looked at her background and then had an opportunity to talk with her and hear in her words, how she wants to help young girls and give them voice and a place and a choice. I just thought, wow, you know, so to that two second move on television my response was wow thank you i'm humbled just i know i saw it and i was so i was not i don't know if happy's the right word but just felt like okay the it was such a statement the fact that somebody like her on a platform like that was taking something that was happening in one courtroom which really was affecting one really small sport that doesn't get a lot of recognition anyway it's yeah. just, just that one act that she did, I just felt like brought so much more light on on what was happening, what needed to happen. And, um, you know, you've you've been very clear. You said it in the courtroom and you said it outside. It's that it's not about you, but your name, whether you like it or not, now is synonymous with empowering and advocacy and giving a voice to to women that are survivors, men, too, that are survivors. Well, and I'm so, you know, so honored by that. And, and really, in those two seconds, she said two million words, you know, uh, or maybe 200 million words. <laughs> and it's amazing that she has that power and that I she partnered with me in that way. Yeah. The other, and I don't know if you've seen it, but if you haven't seen it, Trevor Noah does a great um, stand-up about the case and, and me. And he's such a great advocate anyway of all people and great issues. And he does this stand-up, I don't know how long it is, five or six minutes. Or I, Anyways, I've seen it a couple of times. And basically he says, look, um, and, and the, the, the comments that he says are so, they're in humor but yet so like her, so serious and so meaningful. And he basically says, look, 
You know, what if everybody were to stand up and speak out? And how would that happen? Essentially, he does this in a funny way, but this is what I get from it. Mm-hmm. He basically says, you know, for all those enablers and bystanders who said nothing, what if the law changed and they got punished the same as the predator they failed to report? He says they'd be lining up. Oh, me. No, me first. Me first. <laughs> and, you know, he doesn't, his delivery is so fabulous, but he got his message across. And again, I was so humbled, thrilled, honored, and especially because I'm in love with his book, Born a Crime. If you haven't listened to it, please do. Hysterical, meaningful, powerful. But again, that was another one who came forward and I just was flabbergasted when I heard it. I didn't even know he was going to do it. I was just listening to it and thought, wow. Yeah. So I will I will find that and I'll link it in the show notes. And yeah, basically what that's saying is you have a responsibility when you have information that is harmful to others and you're basically you're an enabler if you're not reporting right. or not doing something about it. And you know, everybody has a different love language, right? Gifts or compliments. And some people, I, I think that that surpasses love. I think just information languages. And if people respond to humor and that's how they hear things best, then thank you, Trevor Noah. Exactly. Yep. Okay. I'm trying not to wear my glasses because the the ring light (laughs) circle, but I got to put them on. Um, You get to be my age and you have cataract surgery. You get new eyeballs, no more glasses. (gasps) New eyeballs. I mean, I'm trying to do this contact thing and it's, I mean, I was in tears the other day because I just, I'm, I'm an athlete. And so I feel like, especially because I was a gymnast. Why did you get the LASIK surgery? I had that done, loved it. Because it doesn't, I trust me after trying 14 different pairs of contact lenses and crying, uh, I was like, can you just give me lasers and do whatever you got to do? But apparently whatever is going on with my eyes, it's not treatable oh. that way. But this, the gymnast in me is like, well, if I can succeed at gymnastics, I basically can do yeah. any physical feat that there is, including putting in t- contact lenses. It just doesn't work. I'm mm. anyway, I would love some new eyeballs. <laughs> that sounds great. So, um, I, I, I noticed something in my research and that this is kind of going along with, we only know what is shown to us. So what you did by allowing so many survivors to come into the sentencing of the ex-doctor case was that act alone was made to be this, like you were a pioneer of, of mm. doing anything like this. But what I learned in my research is that's not the first time that you've done no. that. No, I have been now a judge for 17 years. Um, back at that case time, the Nasser case, I hate to even say his name, but for those people who might not yep. be familiar with it, I let 156 women speak. And I actually, overall, I think 169 spoke because I said everybody affected. The way I read the Crime Victims' Rights Act, it says victim. There's a federal and a state uh, statute regarding the crime victims' rights, and they have a right to be present in all hearings and proceedings. They have a right to speak, their right to notice when someone's released. There's a lot of rights in there. I read the word victim uh, when they when it comes to speaking in the courtroom very broadly. So I read it as a victim is anyone who's been affected by a crime, right? Because I've seen the rippling effect of a crime. For example, I had a home invasion where a sister was watching the house of uh, the family who went on vacation. The people who broke into the house didn't know she was going to be there. They tied her up. Um, She ends up getting away and really horrifying situation. The family comes home though. And now they're afraid they have, they get a dog, a burglar alarm. The sister will only come over during nighttime and they're all live in this fear. So this beautiful home that they bought in a wonderful area in our um, town they sell and they move away because they are so fearful. It wasn't just the sister who was affected. It was the nieces, nephews, her sister and husband who owned the house, all of that. That's a very simple explanation of the rippling effect, but it goes Mm -hmm. on and on and on, especially when you get into sexual assault. It's not just the the actual victim. It's anyone who loves them. Yeah. Right. And that rippling effect is heartfelt. And I feel that the the voice should be heard in court to start the healing and for the community to know and for the defendant to hear how they hurt this person and for the person to say, you hurt me. So I have done this. I've been a judge for 17 years. I've done it from the day I took the bench because when I was a lawyer and it didn't happen for my clients, I thought, damn it. 
I'm going to do this. And I've done it. And when they tell me I can't do it, I'll get off the bench and lobby for it. I think it's the right thing to do. I think that not just those in my community, but those in the world have said, damn it, that is the right thing to do. Why isn't everyone doing it? We have to give voice to the voiceless and we have to understand the rippling effect of crime. And that's why I do it. Now, to be fair, the prosecutor, when they came and asked me about, will you take a plea in this case? It was the very last minute. And I'd already pulled 200 out of the 800 jurors we were requesting. And I said, well, it has to be on this particular day. They wanted it later and I, because of the federal sentencing. They didn't want it to count for the federal sentencing. And I said, no, it's got to be this day. Otherwise, I'm moving forward. No one, dictate, no one dictates to me what's happening on my docket. And they said, well, we want, there were 29 counts, I think, and he was pleading to seven and they were dismissing child pornography that was found on his phone. And I said, well, I'm going to let everybody speak. And they said, well, you know, we've agreed that everyone was going to speak. I said, no, I don't think you understand who I mean by everyone. I do mean everyone. They said, well, we've already agreed. And so that's part of our agreement. So they put in their plea agreement 125. And I said, no, it's going to be everybody. One of the counsels said, well, um, there's a doctor who wants to testify and some others. I said, yes, and they will testify. If you don't like it, appeal me. And so I let everybody speak. Now, they've not appealed me on who spoke. Um, and of course, they put the cutoff 125. I said, there's no cutoff. And I made that clear. There's never, ever been a cutoff in my courtroom. Um, they've appealed me because they think I'm too mean. I'm biased. I'm, you know, all these other things. But in fact, if you look at the sentencing, the sentencing judge at the federal level gave him, instead of 20, 20, 20 that were stacked where he served all at the same time, it's 20 plus 20 plus 20, which she had the authority to do. And then the judge who sentenced after me on three counts gave him uh, 40 to 125 years, which is about 13.33 years per count. I gave him... 40 to 175 years, which technically, if you divide seven into 40, my math's not good, but it's somewhere around 5.35 years or something like that. So I'm the judge who gave him the least sentence, but because of the voice that I gave everyone, because I had to lash out at him because of his behavior, which right. at time was just horrifying to me as I'm, as he's sitting next to me and I have to lash out and then you can feel the angst in the courtroom. And then when I lash out, it goes down, which is also a safety thing. Um, mm -hmm. And I had everything set up. So if something happens, you know, um, they would take him out. I thought about his safety and all sorts of things. Um, but well, anyways, get attacked once or attempted. that was not in my courtroom. I ran my courtroom like a military operation. I'm trained in security and safety. And uh, that was not about to happen in mine. That wasn't in my courtroom. But I did make sure that he was safe. And I had a safety plan. I met with three different law enforcement agencies to make sure everybody was safe. And we had a plan, an exit plan, and to protect him because I figured that would happen. But no one crossed the line. No one misbehaved. And as soon as I would lash out, the angst would go down and I knew we'd be at safe zone again. So there were a lot of things at play. But yes, voice is so important to healing and to allowing victims to turn into survivors and thrivers and ultimately to be their own hero. It's not just about thriving. We all have that inner hero inside us. They need to feel it, own it, and live it. Well put. So you said that when you were a lawyer, it was frustrating to not yeah. see the victims have a voice or the the. Uh, family members, the anybody affected. Is that is that what had gave you the decision to transition from lawyer to judge, or were you always on that path? I was always on that path, but I didn't know when, and I wanted to make sure that I had enough background experience to be a judge because judges make important decisions every single day in every case. There's no case that's more important than the than the other. They're all important. So when I was in practice, I had a lot of child abuse and neglect cases. Now, a lot of court appointed, a lot of family law, civil, criminal law, a whole, the whole mixed bag. But I had this one particular case where a mother was beating her teenager who was climbing out the window to see her boyfriend. Kind of something common for teenagers. 
but she did everything she could do to keep the child in. And then she decided that the only way to put this child into submission was to beat her with a belt buckle. The pictures were horrifying. And I showed these pictures because I had the evidence to the mother. And she said to me, this is the only way I can control my daughter from sneaking out the window to go see her boyfriend. And in that moment, it was very clear to me that I needed to run so that for this kind of thinking, I could say, and you're going to jail and you're going to be rehabbed. And this is what needs to happen. I didn't have the power as a lawyer to do that. As much as I talked to her, there was nothing I could say that would protect that girl from my client. And ultimately we have a good resolution because she was too old to put in foster care and she became old enough so we could put her in independent living. I say we, but the foster care system, there's a mm -hmm. process to put them into independent living and they put her in school and gave her the finances and, and training to really be on her own. So mother and daughter could live uh, separately and stay connected, but this girl would be protected because she had people to work with her and help her become an adult and not be beaten. But in that moment, I literally sat on my hands and thought, I got to run. I got to be able to say, and you're going to prison. And that's what I did. And people say a lot in, you know, jokingly, but that there's no certification to become a parent. Anybody can just become a parent. Nobody can tell you that you can't. Do you think there is a world in which there will be some sort of law applied to who can and cannot parent? I mean, if you've seen so much. And I know, again, it's kind of a joking thing that people say, but I just wonder, would, would that be a better situation? Is that something that's even feasible? I don't think constitutional. I don't know. Completely unconstitutional. I don't think it's feasible. Is it wishful thinking? Yes. Is it fun to think about? Sure. But more importantly, when we think about it, I think we have to get back to basics and say, okay, where can we fix this problem? How can we fix it? And I hate to shove more on the schools, but we could get rid of a couple of stupid classes perhaps and throw in some classes about how do we do banking? How, do we have the right to our body? How do we say no? What is good touch and bad touch? When are we ready to have a child? What does it take to have a child? What does being a mom and a dad mean? And I think if we teach children at a very young age, these things, we're going to find out what good things are happening in their homes, what bad things. We're going mm -hmm. to be able to flip the script for them in their life and how they make their choices as an adult. But I think it needs to be taught in the schools. And I hate to say that the school should take on more, but honestly, it's not happening in homes and people are uncomfortable about talking about breasts and penises and body parts and birth control and sex. So sign a release, have the schools do it, or don't sign a release, just legislate it and say that schools may teach these right. things so that we have functioning human beings because it's okay to learn a math problem, but it's not okay to learn about a breast and a penis. There's a problem with that because you probably are going to have more access to what should I do with my, or more questions I should say about what should I do with my breasts or my penis if someone touches it or uh, should I let someone, then you're going to have about a math problem. You got calculators for that. We can't calculate, okay, should I have a baby now? Right, I don't right. think we can say, Siri, is it time for me to have a baby? <laughs> <laughs> of all the things we can ask. But yeah. that's interesting because you kids are not going to go, if they, if they took science from school, they're not going to go learn science on the street. Right. But if you don't teach them the things that you were just talking about, they are going to find out, and I don't mean on the street, but they're going to find out outside of the school walls, and it's not going to be correct information. I mean, gosh, if you if I could tell you what I thought sex was when I was 10 years old, what mm -hmm. I thought you, you just, but you're, they're curious, they know it exists, and they're going to go find that information wherever they yep. can, and it's usually somebody's big brother or big sister. So yeah, it no. doesn't go away because we're not talking about it. Talking about that, you just reminded me of a little story when I was in high school. And thankfully, my dad was a doctor. So I went home and asked him this because I thought, well, this can't be right. I had a girlfriend whose boyfriend said, if I only insert myself in you for three seconds, it was called, we called it laughingly, the three second rule. Mm -hmm. If I only insert myself in you three seconds, then you can't get pregnant. So I went home and said, so is this even possible? And my dad said, you know, that's stupid. And even if, if you have fingers that have semen on it, you can get pregnant. 
you know, um, there's no such rule. And I went back to my friends and said, yeah, that's stupid. My dad's a doctor and he's a urologist. And he says, that's a stupid rule. And I, and I went and told him what he told me. And thankfully I was just, I sort of had that sort of love hate relationship with my dad where we yeah. could have these sort of sparring conversations. And then he'd look at me and say, well, are you? And I'm like, no, but think what you want. But I disseminated the information. Um, and I think every human being has some stupid story like that, but why aren't we learning the right thing from the time we're a toddler and talking about it? Because then we'll make better choices, informed choices when we are adults. Yep. Yep. Yeah. We're finding it. We're figuring it out from each other. I call like uh, when I was coaching, we would be out on the floor and the parents would be in the lobby and they would infer certain things and then they go, well, why didn't you let her take that turn? And I said, well, actually her ankle was bothering her. So, you know, I explain it and then they're like, oh, and you see, you're, you're watching TV with the sound off and, and coming up with your own answers. But because yeah. it's your kid, it's something you care about. You're not going to not try to find the answer. And it's that same thing. Kids are curious about their bodies. They're curious about sex. They're curious about what adults do. They're not going to stop being curious. They're going to find the answer however they can. So we might as well give it to them. Well, and with the coaching and all the things that the gymnasts and uh, around the world now we're finding the football players at uh, U of M, you know, there's so much education that had children been exposed to the right answers, the armed with the information, they would be able to go to, to their home or to um, a trusted person and say, my coach is coming in the locker room when I'm changing, is that okay? You know, and they would know at least the questions to ask. And if it mm -hmm. feels uncomfortable, talk to a trusted adult. They're not being told that people aren't listening. They're looking at money and medals over safety of children, over giving good answers, over investigating properly. And it's really harming us. We have to have a do over completely. Yeah, definitely. And that's, that is the sentiment medals over safety. Yeah. Um, well, and interestingly enough, all of the statistics show that if you are a coach and you are someone who is, yes, you can do it. And just giving that positive feedback, your athletes do better than if you are no. And you do that again, you're going to have 20 laps. If you're always negative, the negativity they'll perform, but they perform higher with the positivity. So what haven't we learned there? The studies are there. Well, that, that is one of my favorite things to talk about, but basically it's, it, it's the same thing with parenting. You can get your short-term result or you get your long-term result. I am bigger. So therefore I am scarier when I yell. That is not a craft. That is not a skill that I've mastered. I can just be big and scary because I'm bigger than you are and louder than you are. And we can, I can get my kids to do whatever I want them to do if I scare the shit out of them. What yeah. are they going to then take accountability and clean the room themselves because they understand the value of that? Are they going to treat other people kindly because they see the value in that or because I scared them and told them they better? And that's the same thing with coaching. It's it's coaches that they get big and mean and they get the results right away. And wow, doesn't that feel good? You got them to all have straight legs and pointed toes. Good for you. But they're miserable or they're hurt or they burn out or they quit. And there's this other mentality too with, with sports in general that you can't be too nice. Well, if an athlete is going to go all the way, an elite athlete, they already have that mentality. They don't need to, somebody to tell them that they better work hard. They're the ones that are working so hard that the coach is trying to keep up or at least hone it in so that they don't burn themselves out. But it's, it's a craft. It's a craft to push, motivate, and, and accomplish things without doing the quick fix. That's right. a craft. Totally agree. So my last question for you is a very important one. It's asked on almost every episode and it's a problem. Uh, I'm looking for your take on why this happens and how we can fix it. So in case you're not familiar with this question that I keep asking, it is this, how come when I go to a restaurant, it could be high end, it could be middle of the road, and I order a dish with shrimp. Now, I'm not talking about shrimp cocktail. I'm talking about your shrimp Caesar salad, your scampi, things that shrimp is integrated into the dish. Why are the tails still on? 
That is a really weird pet peeve, by the way. It's However, so I love it. I think that what you need to do is just say no, ta- uh, you know, pull the tails off the shrimp. And I, I just think it takes an extra couple of minutes, an extra couple of thoughts of love from the chef to do that for you. Yeah. But I think you have to ask for it. See, I don't mind seeing that because I want to pull it off myself and I want to take those tails and then I would dip it in the sauce anyway. So it would be mm-hmm. a cleaner way for me to do that. I okay. think it's one of those to each their own, but uh, I think you should just order. Have you ever tried ordering it the um, way you want it? So I have a video that I just put up on my social media last week where I was at a restaurant in Cape Cod. I ordered shrimp Caesar salad. I have this all in video and I said, could you please ask the chef to remove the tails? And she said, well, I'll ask him, but I don't know if he'll do it. And I was like, okay. She brought the dish over, tails on. So he refused to do it. Clearly. Yeah, I think that's poor service. And if I owned that restaurant, I'd pull the damn tails off for you because I think that the customer is always right. And if you want the Thank tails you. off, it's such a small thing to ask. So for me, everybody who's ever eaten with me, I am asking for the extra sauce and mm-hmm. you know, no croutons and extra this and that. And so I would be like you. And if that's what I wanted, that's what I'm paying for. And that's what I deserve. I think we've all become complacent and we all need to start speaking up. So I'm trying to get the, the hashtag shrimp tails no more happening. But I'll tell you, every time I do an interview, something ends up happening. Somebody will send me a picture of a dish with shrimp tails on. Sometimes I get a picture with them off and they have their big thumbs up. So it's everybody feels it. Everybody's affected by it. So I'm, I'm glad that you also feel strongly. <laughs> well, I just think we, that we all need to demand it our way. You're paying for it. I want it my way. Otherwise, just let me beeline to the kitchen and show them how it's done. Is that the most meaningful question that's been brought to you in an interview? I think that's <laughs> the most fun one. Yes, absolutely. Something I would have never thought of. <laughs> now they'll say the hip thing is it's a fashion thing. We serve shrimp with no tails. That's what's in fashion. Yes. It's always about what's in fashion. So maybe you're started a new fashion. I'm working on it one podcast at a time. Well, your podcasts, all of them are certainly fun. <laughs> Thank you. So my very last question for you is when I say the word joy, what does that make you think of? Joy makes me feel or think of everyday life with my children being on the bench, helping the community and the grandparents who raised me to be the voice that I am makes me joyful. Beautiful. So you get to experience joy on a regular basis. And that's a beautiful thing those who I've loved uh, past, present, and who I hope to see in the future, whether I'm alive or dead. That's joy, family. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for trusting an hour and a half with a stranger. I appreciate it. Anytime. Fun show. This is probably the uh, one of the most fun, entertaining um, hours I've spent with anyone. So that's quite an accomplishment because I've done oh, a lot of interviews. Oh, wow. Well, thank you. That is a huge compliment. Well, thank you uh, again. And is there anything that you want to share as far as what you're up to? I know you, we didn't even scratch the surface with your other endeavors. So is there anything you want to let people know where they can follow you or find what you're up to? I have rosemaryaquilina.com. Uh, my novels are out there on Amazon and Audible. Um, I'm working on a number of projects. They'll be leaked throughout. And um, there's Warrior Women Speak podcast I did with Sherry Bot when there's about 15 or 16 episodes that we're, I don't know if we're going to continue it or not, but people have really enjoyed that. Um, I'm in court all the time, every day, almost. You can zoom in if you want the number, reach out to me on Facebook or Twitter, Instagram. I'll give you the number or you can go on our website and you're certainly able to watch court, just figure out we're in the Eastern time zone. So you have to marry that up. But um, if you're looking, if you're tired of television, zoom into court, my court or anybody else's, it's great fun. And, um, you know, use your voice and make sure that when you use your voice that gives you a choice gives other people a choice and makes us all better for it so partner together and let's change the world thank you and speaking of changing the world thank you for being one large part of changing my world which is very clearly gymnastics it has been since i was a a very little kid and gotta take a breath so i don't cry um what you have done and I know that it's not about you 
but what you have done has impacted my livelihood. It has impacted my kids because I know now that by the time I have to make real decisions about where they're, what sport they're doing, and I won't, I won't hesitate as much as I thought I maybe would have to put them in gymnastics because I know that you're a huge part of the culture shift that is happening right now. So thank you from the bottom of my heart for that. And on behalf of many people that I spoke to before this interview, um, I asked people, what, you know, what do you want to know? And a lot of them said that they want you to know how much they appreciate what you've done to, to shed a light on what needed a, a light shed on it. So, well, you. let me just say that they are the heroes. I just opened a tiny little door and they walked through it. That's really powerful. They use their strength and they showed the world no means no. And look at Simone Biles. She's such a force. And in my courtroom, she was so uh, powerful and now we see her just going on and forward and she's had her own battles but look at what she's done and i think that's the power of using your voice and listening to your inner girl and every time we do that we are our own heroes our own champions you don't have to win the olympics and all the medals that she has but you win every single day not just for yourself but for others when you use your voice and you say no, and you teach the world that no means no, and informed consent, and parents should never, ever be told, you can't go in this room. If you are told you can't go somewhere where your child is, then that's not the right place for your child to be. Go to a different gym, go to a different facility, report that person. Uh, there's so much work to be done, and that's why shows like yours opening this conversation are so important. So thank you. Thank you so much. All right. The tears stayed in. It's a little bit of success there. Um, I, I would love to talk to you again if you're up for it. And I will, I will share all the information that you shared as far as how people can stay connected with you. Follow what you're doing in the show notes. Have a wonderful day. You too. Thank you. Bye. And that's going to be it for today. I want to thank Judge Aquilina for her time today. Wow. That was a lot. This episode made me think about our perception of what's really going on in our world. If you think about it, we really only know what we see and that pertains to everything in life. If we see it, then it's real. If we hear about it, then it happened. But it's those things that we don't. And that can be a scary thing to think about. It's a uncomfortable place to let your brain go. I had a big realization during this interview, realizing that when she mentioned spending a day in her courtroom and understanding the world around you more so than you ever would reading the newspaper because those stories are selected. What happens in a courtroom on a day-to-day -day basis? Well, it's everything. And maybe we would have a better grasp on what we need to do as a society to better ourselves and each other if we actually knew everything that was going on. But again, that's... A scary thought and that's uncomfortable. I don't know if I want to know. What do you guys think? <laughs>